Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, older than the dinosaurs. And I'm Leah Richards, constantly replacing my teeth. Why are we these things, you may wonder? Well, a little while ago we had some interesting stories come our way about whales, which led us to having interesting questions about sharks. So we're going to find someone to tell us if they are interesting questions or not. We're speaking with Melissa Marquez of the Finns United Initiative about her work with sharks, shark biology, awareness of sharks, participation in shark ecology, and all kinds of things with teeth. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's good that you could join us after what seems like a very busy week for you. (laughs) Thanks for having me, guys. I suppose for all the folks at home, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your work with the Finns United Initiative. What does your average week look like? Yeah, um, so right now I'm based out of Sydney, Australia, and it's very nice here (laughs) because there's a lot of sharks, so this is perfect. And what I do with the Finns United Initiative is showcase not only the diverse chondrichthians, which are the sharks, the skates, the rays, and the chimeras, so the cousins of the sharks as well, but also the scientists who study them all around the world, which is really cool because they do a bunch of different science with them. It's not all just tagging. It's not all just looking at habitat use, which is kind of my specialty. I mean, there's people out there being able to test the waters and through something called eDNA figure out that a shark has been there because it pooped. So there's definitely a very wide variety of shark science out there. And the fact that we only see a fraction of it on TV uh, led me to start the Finns United Initiative by showcasing those diverse sharks that you normally don't see on TV and also the scientists that you normally don't see on TV. So average week depends. Um, I try to get out a few different shark bios uh, and when I say shark bios here, I mean any of the chondrichthians. So this Monday, I just came out with a brand new skate one. In a few hours, actually, there's going to be a what I call the behind the fins interview, which is that's when we interview the scientists. And now because Fin Genetic Initiative is branching out, we're actually interviewing photographers, conservationists, Uh, wildlife illustrators, and so on and so forth, and really broadening up the scheme of who not only works with, but also captures these animals in different lights. And so we have got another interview coming out. Uh, Wednesdays, we usually have Wedge Fish Wednesday Facts or Whale Shark Wednesdays Facts. And then Thursdays and Fridays vary between Tiger Shark Thursday Thresher Shark Thursday, depending how I feel. And then Fridays are Fossil Fridays, where we uh, talk about ancient sharks. And we're actually doing a whole entire series of ancient chondrichthians leading up to Jurassic World. Well, I've just been sat here with a smile on my face the whole time. That sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> it's definitely a lot of fun. All shark, all the time. Yeah, I enjoy myself. <laughs> Well, I suppose we should probably crack on with some of the questions that we've got for you, starting with one, because we had a had a piece of research come our way a little while ago about whales and how big they can get. Aquatic mammals in general, that their size is constricted more than terrestrial mammals by being able to maintain body heat at the smaller end and being able to basically get enough food to build big bodies at the other end. One of the things that this research pointed out was that filter feeding whales have kind of broken that 
second barrier to a certain extent because it's such a low energy feeding strategy. And mm-hmm. I mean, what I was interested by is if blue whales can get so big because they filter feed, why aren't whale sharks that big? That's a really good question. And you know what? I actually don't know the answer. Yeah, that's a great question, to be honest. You know, the funny thing about whales, we just published a post about Megalodon shark. I promise this is going to come back to whales. <laughs> and, and it's actually hypothesized that after Megalodon was extinct, it actually paved the way for a whale's massive size. So it allowed them to get to the size that they also get, which I find really, really cool. But yes, speaking of whales and whale sharks, yeah, I'm not exactly sure why they don't get any bigger. I mean, it's fascinating already that they are the biggest fish and they eat the smallest animals. Yeah, part of the whole point of the research on the whale end of things was that the equation of food into energy out has to maintain in some way. And the volumes of food that a filter feeder has to consume to reach that energetic demand is so astronomically vast but also they're not expending that much energy to collect it because they just open their mouths and let it happen unlike toothed whales that have to hunt it i mean i was wondering if maybe it was that sharks had hit on filter feeding as a strategy more recently but since they've been around so long that seems unlikely yeah uh to be honest i don't know i wish we had like one of those phone a friend Actually, he wouldn't be awake right now because Alistair Dove, he would definitely know. Or, well, actually, he might not know, but he would be able to point us in the right direction with that. Yeah, I'm actually going to ask him that if you don't mind, because this is a really fascinating question, one that I didn't even think of. Yeah, that would be great because yeah. I'd I'd be super interested in having an answer. Yeah, you're welcome to get back to us Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, definitely. I'm 100% going to ask him and be like, I have a question and you might be the guy with the answer. And if it does take some work doing, then we're happy to take like a second author position on whatever. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Yeah, whale sharks. I mean, they all of the filter feeding sharks are absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I'm a little bit jealous of them because they just swim around and they eat all the time. And I'm definitely one of those people that I graze more than just have three meals a day. So that is, if I could come back as anything, it would be a whale shark. (laughs) I believe the kids today say hashtag goals. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All of this filter feeding shark does actually lead quite neatly into some recent research that we've been holding on to for a special occasion, building up to a shark-focused episode. It was actually a study that came out just last week, or rather a report that came out just last week, of a whale shark that was clocked on its longest migration, total of 20,142 kilometers from the eastern Pacific to the western Indo-Pacific. Yeah, that just came out. I mean, we've known that these animals are highly migratory, but we had no idea that they... I mean, this is the furthest distance ever recorded. And it is a staggering distance. I mean, if you were trying to yeah, do it in a boat, it would take forever. Yeah, I mean, it's for those, I guess, Americans who are listening, it's almost 12,000 miles. <laughs> That's across the Pacific Ocean. I mean, the Pacific Ocean is harrowing enough sometimes with its weather patterns and with its currents. And the fact, I mean, this was what, 266 days of tracking? 
when the signal disappeared after the animal, I believe the whale shark's name was Anne. Yeah. And she went into the deep water. So not only are they highly migratory animals, but they also go up and down the water column as well. And that's also a migration. So she made her way over to the Marianas Trench. Yeah, I mean, the depths they go to is one of the reasons we don't know so much about them, right? Because it's mysterious. We know very little about why whale sharks migrate and their paths. I mean, honestly, that's for a lot of marine animals. We know very little about their migration patterns. And it's only thanks to recent technology like tags that allow us to kind of have a sneak peek into their lives. And then there was that piece from late last year about using the citizen science initiatives to try and track down some of these migratory patterns, help people contribute to a little bit of the understanding by themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, actually, because uh, not only I, I mean, I'm a really big advocate for having the public and scientists come together for a really good cause. And citizen science is such a great way of doing that because you get quote unquote, regular people involved, and they get to see their efforts really turn out into, I mean, at this point, it was a publication. What I find really interesting is that there's actually genetic studies showing that whale sharks across the globe are actually closely related. So all of these sharks with their unique and different patterns are related in some way. And that's fascinating. I suppose a lot like the whale populations that we were talking about a couple of episodes ago with distinct cultures, distinct movements of populations to places at different times for spawning, for feeding, that there's whole worlds happening just out of sight that we'd never otherwise know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, these kind of migrations suggest that they have to travel really long distances in order to mate. And it's almost like finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, try finding another animal of your kind in something as giant as the Pacific Ocean. It's, I don't know how they do it. So it's really, really fascinating. Do we know if they've got any ways of communicating with each other? I mean, we know that whales sing. Do whale sharks make noises or leave pheromone trails? Or To be honest, again, it's one of those mysteries. It's so funny. And one of the things that I find really funny is that a lot of these charismatic animals that a lot of people instantly think of, like when I say shark, a lot of people think of great white shark. There's still giant gaps of knowledge that we have of great white sharks, and they are one of the most studied sharks. And so something as elusive as a whale shark, and I mean, these animals live long lives. Uh, when they're allowed to. And so trying to track something that is hard to get to, hard to tag, hard to find, it doesn't surprise me that we've got such large gaps in it and that so much is still a mystery. And that's one of the things I love about studying them is that there is still so much to learn. So as we can see, you know, there's always sharks popping up in the news, either good or bad. And whenever new shark science comes up, I'm always excited because it's like, ooh, what else did we find out? There was actually a piece of New Shark Science that came out just the other day, and it ties into what you mentioned you were studying as well with the eDNA. Uh, It's from Science, talking about eDNA revealing apparently that huge amounts of DNA, environmental DNA, loose in the water from, well, 
uh, shock poo. Yeah. <laughs> there's no nice way of To me, it's that. just going to be like a skull and bones. Apparently, there's a lot of it that we look at and go, huh, no idea what that is. That's probably new sharks that we've not met yet. Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting because it's a non-invasive way of figuring out what sharks have been in that area. And a lot of people are saying that using eDNA to monitor these shark populations is actually better than current methods of monitoring these populations, which usually are really costly, which are really invasive, they're time consuming. And a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of problems with things like tags. They don't work, or they pop off and you never find them, or they malfunction. So it's a new way of monitoring these shark populations. I think it'll be really interesting to see how they will continue using it in different parts of the ocean and what results we get from it. Definitely does seem like it's more thorough than things like having to see the shark. If you just trawl across the Pacific with a shark poop scoop and see what turns up. Yeah, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at the edge of a boat with, it's called a hydrophone, and it's basically putting a microphone underneath the water and listening for either beeps or some sort of pattern of these tags that you're trying to find. I mean, I remember going through the mangroves for like four or five hours not finding one single shark. So heck, if I can get that time back and also it be really inexpensive and get great results, why not? Once we've figured out where these sharks are, what they're doing, new genetic analysis is revealing that even the sharks we thought we knew are more varied. There's a whole new species of six-gill shark that's just been confirmed. That's, yeah, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's one of those things, did you guys actually know that on average, there's a new species of sharks being described every two weeks? This is on average. That's a lot. Yeah, there's over 500 species already. If you would ask me how many species of sharks are there, I would have maybe ballparked it at like 100, 200, assuming like there's a couple <laughs> of each that I could name. Yeah, like, oh, they're big animals. We're probably mostly aware of what's out there. It's like you'd have to go somewhere really unusual to find anything new and then... Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Florida holds many mysteries. (laughs) That's going to be the title of this episode. (laughs) It's, and I can say that because I'm from there. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of these new species are actually from the deep sea. But it's interesting when you get a new species of shark that's right underneath your nose. There's actually a species of hammerhead that a lot of people were confusing with, I believe it was the great hammerhead. And a scientist off of South Carolina was like, no, they look a little bit different. And it turns out it was a completely different species. So they called it the Carolina hammerhead shark. And it's like, are you kidding me? We've had it there this entire time. And we didn't know. And the same deal with these six skills where it was like, oh, yeah, they're the same as the ones the other side. And they're not. Well, I mean, they're vaguely shark-shaped. They occupy a similar habitat. They look shark enough. They've, They've got also the... got the six gills. <laughs> no. <laughs> Having the Carolina hammerhead shark, that is one of the coolest sounding animal names I've ever heard. Yeah, have they named a sports team after them yet? 
No, not yet. I think they should change the Gamecocks to the Carolina Hammerhead Sharks. It'd be a lot better. Definitely more exciting. And they might actually win a few more games. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, sports psychology. All right, right. I mean, look, how intimidating is a rooster really going to be as a mascot? Whether you have a hammerhead shark with tons of rows of teeth. I've heard fighting cocks can really do you some damage, but... But which does more damage, (laughs) fighting cock or hammerhead? (laughs) I'm sure we could actually run the numbers on this. How many people die in chicken-related incidents compared to shark attacks? Oh, but then you're going to have to correct for how many more people are in contact with chickens than with sharks. This is true. People don't keep sharks in their back gardens. Except, I guess, maybe in Florida. God, I hope not. (laughs) Yeah, Florida's a weird place. (laughs) (laughs) That's a whole other episode. (laughs) I I can guest post on that one, too, because I lived in Florida for a while, so I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, according to some more Floridian research, last year was fine for shark attacks. Just average. Yeah, an average shark attack year despite the increased chances of people encountering a shark. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of people forget when we bring up shark bite encounters. And the reason I'm kind of staying away from the word attack is because it does give this connotation of this animal going after you on purpose and like it has an intent on it. Whereas really it's just a predator doing its natural job. In a way. I mean, it's not like, it's like, oh, yes, human, that's exactly what I wanted today. No, they're going after their own prey, which is fish, which is seal, which is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there are accidents, there are incidents where people do get bitten, both uh, in non-fatal ways and in fatal ways. And I do think that the terminology around sharks is something that doesn't really help the reputation. It makes me sad, especially when, well, actually, there's tons of articles like these every year where a diver goes or a snorkeler goes and goes up to a nurse shark, kisses it on the mouth because they think they can do that, and then the shark bites them and they call it an attack. Like, if you come up to me and you randomly kiss me and I have no idea who or what you are, I'm not going to bite you, I'm going to punch you because I can, but that's essentially the shark's version. I'd probably bite him. <laughs> I wouldn't want their blood in my mouth. If the face <laughs> is right there and you're like the mouth is that close, yeah, it'd be more memorable, that's it's, for sure. Yeah, it's going to surprise them more than me punching them. Yeah, I I went up, I randomly kissed this person and she bit me. <laughs> that's the start of at least 3 zombie movies I can name. So <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, the the chances of you dying from a shark bite are very, very low. You've actually got a higher chance of dying from heart disease, cancer, stroke, flu, car accident, being run over by cows, being swished by a vending machine, having ducks attack you. Like, there, there's more things to worry about there than sharks. According to the CDC... 380 deaths per year in the continental United States caused by infected chicken. So, yeah, (laughs) chicken wins. The real killer. (laughs) Only one fatal encounter with a chicken at an illegal cockfight, but it was a spectator who uh, got stabbed to death by a strapped chicken. 
So. Oh my god! I just I love the idea that someone's like, "Oh, how do we make this fight more exciting? Let's put knives on the birds." Death by chicken. The chicken turned on them immediately and gouged an eye out. Yeah. Oh, what do you expect when you've strapped a knife to a former dinosaur? <laughs> yeah. See, chickens, the real killer. That should be on all the posters now. <laughs> And since you've mentioned former dinosaurs, and Melissa, you've said you do uh, Fossil Fridays, last time we were at the cinema, we saw the trailer for The Meg. Have you got a, a perspective oh, on that? <laughs> <laughs> that's a perspective. Yeah, that counts. That is a perspective. Here's the thing. Every time I go into a classroom of kids, I always, without a fail, at the end of my presentation, I ask, does anyone have questions? And at least one hand pops up saying or asking is megalodon real i if i had a dollar it's real but it doesn't exist anymore right right or just if it's still around like is it lurking if i had a dollar for every single time someone asked me that i would be rich would you have enough money to clone a megalodon (laughs) i wouldn't see if i was gonna clone anything i wouldn't clone a megalodon i would clone like a woolly mammoth or something because they're cute Megalodons have been gone for much longer. We don't really have an ocean that could sustain them. It would be pointless. Exactly. The whole, oh, it's lurking in the deep and whatnot. It's like, have you done your research? And people are like, of course I've done my research. And it's like, no, no, you clearly haven't because you'd realize that this is actually a shallow water animal. And we would be very, very aware if a shark that big was suddenly snapping up whales. But, you know, Jason Statham's in it, so I don't think anyone's expecting a huge amount of scientific rigor. I hope not, anyway. No, no, not at all. Well, you know, I've I've set my expectations very low as to what people actually accept as science nowadays. Maybe it'll be a fantastic exercise in public engagement of, I know, here's the extinct version of sharks. It's now a good time to talk about the extant version, about how we keep chopping their fins off, and that's probably not great for them as a population. It's going to be a very great exercise of my patience. (laughs) Uh, But no, no, it it always is a good public education opportunity whenever one of these movies come out because people do look for shark scientists to answer the questions of, is this actually possible? So it's a double-edged sword where it's a good thing because it gives some sort of publicity to sharks but not really the one that we want uh but it's i mean it's also a gateway to talk about ancient sharks and ancient chondrichthians which were really really cool and that kind of segments to the sharks nowadays that we have that are just as cool and very very crucial to maintaining many ecosystems and the balance of our ocean and just like you said will uh, a lot of these guys do face a lot of problems that could be fixed by humans. Finning is one of them, but actually the biggest threat to sharks right now is overfishing and bycatch numbers. Um, So unsustainable fishing not only depletes the prey stock of these animals, so they're not getting as much food, but a lot of these nets are non-discriminatory, so they're just picking up sharks and any other animals as well, like dolphins, turtles. They don't have the turtle exclusionary devices and a bunch of other animals as well. And another thing that is big is habitat loss and habitat destruction. Well, that is not so much the chirpy note we were hoping to end on, but uh, that 
is also the course of human history. So there we go. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the thing we have to remember is that even a small change at home can help. A lot of people are really big on reducing their plastic pollution footprint. Finns United Initiative has a whole entire section called the Little Fin Fighters, where we actually encourage younger audiences to incorporate using less plastic in their lives. And of course, you know, that includes their parents as well. And something just as simple as refusing straws or saying no to straws of getting a reusable water bottle that instantly cuts down on plastic that usually ends up in the ocean and is polluting all of these habitats that these animals end up in. I mean, something as simple as downloading a sustainable seafood app on your phone as well can help these animals. And again, we have a whole entire page on that, on the Fins United Initiative. So there are things that we can do to turn it around. I mean, we've only got one planet. We got to take care of her. And I sincerely hope that a lot of people are waking up if they're not already woken up to the fact that we are very close to going to a place of no return when it comes to planet Earth's health. And it's going to take all of us to take care of her. And it can be done. It's just we got to work together. And I've got some hope for humanity. We're not a bad bunch all the time. So if we put our noggins together and if we put our hearts into it, I do think we can leave this planet a lot better than a lot of us introduced to it. And if people do want to keep up with the Finns United Initiative, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, so we've got a Facebook page. And every like that the Facebook page gets, I actually share a hashtag FinFact over on my Twitter, which is at MCMSharksXX. So FinFacts are basically just little random facts about any shark, skate, ray, or chimera that I feel like doing that day. So we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, which is Finn's United Initiative, we're on Tumblr, and of course we've got our website as well. Uh, we're also on Pinterest, and uh, if people have any questions about sharks and whatnot, best way to contact me is via Twitter or my email. That's great, and if you do find out anything about why whale sharks are big but not super big, then uh, we'd be super interested Ooh, to yes, hear about that. definitely. Definitely, we'll keep you guys in the loop about that. That is really interesting. Actually, as soon as I get off of this, I'm sending Alistair an email being like, hi, I know it's six o'clock in the morning over there, but I have questions. <laughs> Important shark questions. It's always worth getting up early for those. I mean, I feel like if he realizes it's a good whale shark question, he'll be like, yes, this is worth waking up for. Now, he's a really, really nice guy, and he's definitely my go-to guy when it comes to whale shark questions, so... Again, if he doesn't have the answer, uh, he'll know someone who does or possibly know someone who does. Uh, I don't want to put him on the spot there. So I'm quite excited to learn something new. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning slash evening, however it is the time zone. <laughs> thank you guys for having me again. It was a lot of fun. And I've been, I mean, I've been listening to your podcast now for a while. So this is a great honor for me. Oh, oh. <laughs> it make me blush on the internet. <laughs> so thanks again to melissa for taking the time to talk with us if you have any shark questions you should probably send them to her not to us but if you have any other questions then you can find us at eureka nerdcast on twitter 
or EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. If you want to hear me chatting about some more interesting stuff, Sharks and Beyond, you can find me at the Wiki Walking Podcast as well. And Melissa's links will be all in the description too. But until next time, that's all from me. And all from me. Bye-bye.